On this episode of China Unscripted, you may think the Chinese Communist Party has an iron grip on power, but dissent runs rampant. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. Joining us today is Kevin Slayton. He's the research lead for China Descent Monitor, a new database and research tool from Freedom House that tracks the frequency and diversity of descent in China. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it's it's great that we they were having you on because you know you specialize in descent in China, and the big news was is the, the these riots going on in Guangzhou over the COVID lockdowns, after they said they were going to ease COVID restrictions, I believe. I don't know if they really said they were going to ease that kind of COVID restriction. No, what did they say? They're going to optimize. Yeah. But uh, so the the Guangzhou COVID lockdowns, is that pretty representative of the kind of protests that are going on in, in China? Um, yeah. I, so we recorded, I mean, so let me put this in a sort of the backdrop of our findings so far, because I think it'll help explain how typical or not those particular protests were. Um, so we did a quarterly report collecting information about dissent in China from June to September. So it's actually a quarter plus one. And we found around 668 uh, events of dissent. And most of these, uh, the majority, the far majority of them were protests, um, street pro- sort of offline protests and demonstrations. What kind um, of size? Uh, the size of those, uh, on on average, so the most frequent one uh, that we coded was uh, 10 to 99, so sort of moderate size. Um, that's the most frequently seen. But there were a lot that we would consider large scale, um, over 100 people or in the hundreds, um, but less than 1,000. Uh, but sort of going, so going back to the to the frequency of different types of protests, um, up to now, so that, that data was collected, 668 was collected up to uh, the end of September. Um, now, you know, it's been a couple months since we've done that, or almost a couple months, and we're up to uh, nearly 800 events. So, you know, the, the frequency of protests, in uh, and, and these are geographically pretty uh, well distributed around most of uh, uh, central China, um, so not including some of the uh, western regions. So the frequency of dissent of this sort of protest is quite, is quite high. Um, among those that, that we found so far... Um, there's about 50 to 60, I don't have the precise number in front of me right now, but 50 to 60 that have something to do with COVID policies or uh, COVID restrictions. So they're people that are protest, usually again, offline with some online cases, people that are protesting um, or uh, refusing to cooperate with uh, COVID restrictions. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not, it's not rare. Uh, in, in just a, a matter of a few months, uh, we have uh, dozens of uh, of COVID-related protests and and uh, refusing in refusal to cooperate, and these are often in, in groups, not just individuals. So, from that perspective, uh, it's not rare what what happened in Guangzhou. What I think is maybe uh, less frequently seen is um, sort of the intensity of that event. So, people overturning cars, sort of wrecking barriers. This this does happen. There are other cases that we've reported these past few months where this has happened, but it's not the sort of typical uh, uh, mode of, of protest that we see. Uh, well, so what is the more typical mode of protest? Um, I mean, it's it's still people gathering in groups. It's still collective action, uh, but uh, I, it's 
I think rarely do you see people, you know, I mean, again, overturning a car is not something that you, you see in an average protest in China. Um, there is, there are cases, there's uh, more than a few cases where people were sort of like trying to take down barriers. Um, I think that often the sort of the object of grievance or the object of discontent are these barriers, right? Because that's what the COVID restrictions are all about is limiting people's movement. Often it's preventing people from working. Uh, this is one of the, the major underlying grievances is that it sort of just stops everybody's life for weeks or months at a time um, and can really lead to some livelihood issues. Uh, so a lot of times sort of barriers that are preventing people from moving across the city or between areas um, are sort of the object of, of protest uh, symbolically. Um, but I think the the level of intensity just I have the sense from seeing the videos and some of the footage from the, the protests in Guangzhou that it's it's just a little bit higher than sort of the average intensity you see for a lot of the, the cases that we documented. Yeah, I did. Re I did remember seeing a video of them basically attacking a COVID testing station. And that struck me as more unusual than what you were saying before about the barriers. Right, right. I mean, so COVID testing stations, that's another interesting, um, sort of symbolically, it's another interesting uh, subject. There are other protests, like we call them sign protests or, uh, uh, well, we categorize them as sign protests, but they can include graffiti. So it's not necessarily just signs that people are hanging up. And uh, there are cases, uh, I think there was, it was in Beijing, at several, or Shanghai, I can't remember right now, there's several testing stations. Um, people were basically putting graffiti on the sides of these testing stations, um, decrying the, the restrictions and uh, demanding uh, freedom. And sometimes it was very explicit, the language that was used. Well, I guess I'm also thinking about uh, the other, you know, big protest that's been happening is people refusing to pay mortgages, the whole, you know, kind of Evergrande, the larger real estate crisis, people... <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty different situation, though, right? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Like, is like these other types of dissent that are happening because you know it is not all tearing down COVID barriers. Right, right. I mean, that's um, that's an apt question because it's the most frequent type of dissent um, that we've reported. Uh, something close between forty and fifty percent of these cases that we've recorded uh, to date had something to do with um, housing. So. The, the actual issue can uh, differ a little bit. Um, so it can be issues of uh, delayed handover or, or what in Chinese is called langwei. Uh, it's basically like stalled, stalled housing project, which is one of the most frequent. Um, but there's also cases where um, it's building quality issues. So people feel like they were, there was false advertising or uh, another frequent uh, issue that drives these sorts of protests are um, accusations of fraud. So the model for funding a lot of these housing projects over decades um, has been one that allows, because of regulations in China, um, it allows uh, uh, developers to take money from a new project that they're advertising and then use it towards the construction of a previous project. Um, so they're not the money that you're investing in your house or your your new home um, as a as a home buyer doesn't necessarily get put into uh, the home that you're expecting. It could be put into a different project altogether. Um, and so it's sort of a liquidity issue. And when, because of economic slowdown or, or uh, accumulated debt, these companies are no longer able to make up that, that gap, um, uh, at least to stalled housing. 
Um, so a lot of that that issue that uh, a lot of people, a lot of protesters in China call misappropriation of funds, they consider it a type of fraud um, that the that the uh, the real estate developers are telling them one thing that this money is being used towards your project and it's really not. Um, so fraud is another common uh, driver of this, at least from the way that we interpret these these protests. Um, but yeah, it's something like 40 to 50 percent of the, the protests that in, in our database that we've been tracking um, have something to do with this uh, large category of issues. So it really is a major driver of discontent and collective action right now. So in terms of that, the people would be protesting the, the real estate companies? The, the tar- so we also code for target of the protest. I should uh, maybe explain that, lay that out really quickly. So uh, we're, we're, taking, we're going through a bunch of different sources, whether it's uh, social media or news reports um, or uh, civil society organizations, NGOs um, that are doing reports about different types of dissent in China. And we take these, these cases and we code them through a methodology that we develop um, uh, across ver- a ver- uh, number of variables. So uh, there's obvious ones like date and location, but we're also interpreting the data that we have, the evidence that we have about each, to look at the, sky, the size, the scale, the issue, the target, the demands, um, whether there was any uh, evidence of repression um, and whether there was any evidence of concessions. Uh, so was, was there some result, positive result, from uh, this activism. Uh, so, so on the question of target, um, the target for housing-related uh, protests uh, can, can vary. So definitely the real estate developer is probably the most common. But actually the local government gets pulled into these uh, a lot of times. And the reason for that is because when, you know, the, the home buyers, the protesters are uh, this is a this is a major livelihood issue. They put a lot of money into these into into their uh, their their future homes, and um, it has a huge impact on their their economic well-being. Um, so, if this has been stalled for months or, or even years at a time, they're really digging into the details behind their cases, and they understand that um, the government um, in a lot of in a lot of these cases, in most cases, are tasked with uh, supervising these deals. So there's a there's a body in in most local governments have a body that's supposed to supervise uh, basically the escrow account where they're putting these funds. After a certain amount of time, uh, a lot of the protesters start to ask, uh, you know, what is the government doing about uh, this? Why why aren't they? You know, why isn't there sufficient um, oversight of the way that these funds are being used or misused in in the eyes of protesters? So they uh, often will direct uh, their discontent at local regulators, um, also banks, um, who are who, where the escrow account itself is, uh, where this uh, this account lies. Um, this is one of the things uh, that has led to this more recent evolution in recent months of a um, uh, the the mortgage uh, boycott that you had mentioned. So uh, ju- this is just even though the housing protest has been going on for a long time, um, this more organized uh, action of directing uh, the dissent at banks and trying to put pressure on banks is a little bit more recent. Um, and that's uh, an effort to try to find a different pressure point to get concessions uh, when, uh, you know, this house is, these housing uh, uh, projects have been stalling for so long. 
So what I find interesting about this is, uh, you know, I know one of the tactics of the Chinese Communist Party is often to, uh, you know, play off any kind of dissent against local governments. This happened a lot in COVID in particular. Like, if there's a problem, blame the local authorities. It has nothing to do with the Communist Party itself, fundamentally, or especially the central government. And so sort of from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that largely it seems like the dis dissent in China is not focused directly at the Chinese Communist Party itself or the central government. It tends to be uh, much smaller or more local in scale. This is, um, so it's a very brief answer. I would say, yes, that's a, that's uh, a relatively accurate takeaway. If we, if, but I would substitute Communist Party or the one party regime for the central government. So it's, it's rare that protests are directed at the central government. Um, uh, we, we've coded something like two to three percent of the dissent events that we've, uh, uh, that we've collected uh, are, direct, are directed at the central government, the target central government. So it's pretty rare, but it does, it does exist. Local government or some local government body and then private companies make up the, the majority of the targets. But the reason I say it's complex or so the longer answer to this question is that uh, while people aren't explicitly evoking the, invoking the Communist Party uh, uh, as a target, or uh, often, uh, it does happen, but it's, it's not happening often, or they're invoking you know, the one-party regime, uh, the, you know, it, it is a one-party state, even at the local level. So uh, we, we can interpret from the reaction of the government uh, that even though the target is often local, uh, actors um, or local uh, officials, they still sense it as a threat. Otherwise, we wouldn't see so much repression. We've recorded repression, direct evidence of repression in one out of every four dissent cases. We're relatively confident that it's even a higher proportion than that because um, of just how these cases and what we know about um, the way that police uh, show up at the scenes and what they, what they, how they generally treat protesters. Um, but we only record we code for uh, repression when there's direct evidence of it. We can actually show through pictures or video or some sort of testimony or post. So we found one out of four cases there's, there's repression, which is still pr pretty high. That actually seems surprisingly low because I would think that there'd be crackdowns, but maybe what's happening is not that the police are coming on scene. It might be they're, they're using other tactics like uh, visiting protesters' homes later is that, are you seeing that kind of thing? Or are you not recording it? Um, yeah, I, I would say that's probably a gap, of, uh, a recording gap for us because we're not following, I mean, there's so many cases, there's hundreds of cases that we're not following and, and sort of uh, uh, tracking each one over time. Usually what we're getting is snapshots in time. Um, and I mean, you said that it seems like it's not that high. I think that's what I mean by, we know from generally the pattern of these uh, protests and the way that authorities react that even though we're only seeing a few seconds of the event, because it's big enough, because it's making noise in a public place, we, we can kind of uh, 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 estimate what's gonna happen after that snapshot. But it just happens to be that nobody reports. We didn't find anybody reporting about what happened after we only got that snapshot. So um, go, going back to the previous issue though, so even though the target is local government and private companies most of the time, um, this is being repressed because 
uh, of the sort of a larger structural issue that collective action itself, even when the uh, when the the target is not the one party regime per se, uh, is seen as is seen as a threat. Collective action is and, and people organizing to protest against any authority or any power um, is apparently perceived as a threat. Otherwise, we wouldn't see uh, systematic repression, systematic efforts to keep this information from getting out um, uh, or for people from people recording and, and putting it online and sharing it with one another or, or organizing across borders or organizing across issues uh, and events. Um, there wouldn't be such efforts to try to prevent these things if it wasn't perceived as a threat. So that's a really long way of saying uh, while we're coding at a very sort of micro level and we and we're coding uh, and we're and we're um, analyzing that these events are usually focused on local government and and private companies. Um, the the Communist Party definitely perceives uh, most of these collective actions as uh, instability. Um, otherwise, they there wouldn't be such they wouldn't go to such efforts to try to prevent and repress them on a regular basis. Can you talk about what the success rate of these protests are? Because I'm just thinking through like if repression, if you're if you know as a protester that there's probably going to be consequences to your protest, but there's still enough of an incentive to do it. Yeah, um, this is one of the things, one of the reasons that we wanted to track concessions for, for this very reason, to try to understand um uh, the successes that uh, people are having, and not only how often are they having those successes, but um, what do they look like? Um, it's been uh, somewhat expectedly. It's been a struggle only because concessions uh, don't usually happen at the point of protest. They're not something that you see in the direct evidence. They're often they often happen after you know the local government um, or even the national government. If there's a lot of protests about a particular issue. Um, are making some announcement uh, or change in policy maybe days or weeks after. And it was directly influenced by, uh, by uh, a protest or a number of protests. But we, don't, we can't make that connection all the time directly, or we don't see that action all the time. So it's a little bit um, more difficult to, dr to draw direct lines between one action and concessions. Um, we've been able to, despite that, we've been able to record concessions in um, I'd have to look up the stats. It's off the top of my head. I think it's something like uh, five percent to ten percent of of cases. So it's not it's not uh, nothing. Um, but the reason that it's it's small is again because of this evidence issue. There's probably uh, the the rate of concessions is probably higher, but we can't see it um, as much. Um, the types of concessions that we're seeing really depend on the case. So for COVID, we talked a moment ago about COVID-related protests. Um, often. Uh, People are uh, getting that uh, they're getting uh, some of what they, they want uh, from from these actions. So if it's an issue with movement restrictions or uh, just you know a really draconian lockdown, we've seen lots of cases where the, the local government within a few days loosens up those those restrictions, um, and it's pretty clearly a reaction to public discontent. Um, so uh, you know that's for COVID-related. Uh, Actions for housing, uh, the, it's really hard to draw a direct line because it's such a systematic issue um, that I, I was just talking about, sort of uh, uh, 
an ongoing multi-year issue of companies using a certain model to fund uh, housing projects. But what we saw was uh, what seemed to be the result of this accumulated protest. Even though they, they aren't a concerted sort of organized movement, they've almost had the impact of a movement um, by getting the government to uh, at least uh, verbally make certain commitments. Um, they, uh, the central government said that it was, it was going to uh, uh, provide additional liquidity to some of the, the developing, uh, to some of the real estate companies um, which is kind of counters what it had previously said that it was going to let some of these companies fail if they're not if if they have too much debt, you know that um, that it's irresponsible business um, uh, practices. So, you know, we did see a change in at least the attitude of the government, whether or not it has any actual effect on stalled housing and and it, it leads to uh, uh, yeah less of these this uh, structural issue. It, it remains to be seen. We still see a lot of up to now. We still see a ton of uh, housing-related protests. So it's certainly not something that has been solved. Um, yeah, so we do see concessions. Well, what I find so interesting about the China dissent monitor is that I think there's a sort of popular perception that you know there was a big protest in Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square massacre. And then ever since then, there's been no protests because people are too afraid or brainwashed to protest. But, you know, from from the evidence that you're showing that there's actually a large degree of protests still happening in China. Yeah, this is one of the, the main motivations of this project, among, among others, um, was an information gap that has led to. Uh, a number of misconceptions, and one of them being this one, that um, protest is actually very rare, that uh, people in China, uh, uh, you know, they don't dare organize or, or, or use sort of non-institutional means to try to bring attention to injustices around them, um, that, that they only walk the line and go through designated routes and channels. And, um, you know, for, for sort of a passive observer, um, you can't blame people for this because the information is just not out there. It's very difficult uh, to collect. Um, it takes a, really a systematic approach to collect it in any sort of scale. Uh, and it's and the in the one party uh, state makes it intentionally difficult to find. So part of the purpose of censorship is not just to censor um, uh, you know, direct criticism. So online dissent. It's also to censor evidence of things that are happening offline. Um, so protest is uh, anything uh, that has to do with sort of collective actions, particularly if it's, if it's, uh, uh, if it's sort of a pattern, uh, is targeted for censorship. And you know, there's, there's clear efforts based on keywords or even video analysis to try to prevent, uh, video and picture analysis, to prevent these things from um, being circulated widely online. Despite that, you're still able to find um, some of this evidence if, if you uh, know how to look for it and if you uh, do it relatively quickly in some cases and you back it up. Um, so, uh, you know, you're able to find it, but it's a lot, it's not easy to do. And, and uh, going back to your question, the, the average person is not just going to be able to find this stuff uh, being shared widely. And also because it's, we're talking about something, it's a matter of sort of uh, statistics, it, it frequency. When you see one video of a protest, 
you might still perceive it as rare. But when you realize when you put those things together into a database, it's only then that you realize that it's that it's not that rare, that you have multiple protests happening every day that we can find direct evidence of. Um, so, yeah, that was that it's definitely something that we were trying to respond to uh, with this with this project was filling in that information gap. Uh, and I just want to add to that another, even though you didn't ask about it directly, another mis misconception that we're also trying to respond to um, is uh, the idea sort of linked to the first one that there's sometimes some uh, cultural sort of like the, this cultural stereotype that there's something about Chinese culture that uh, unfortunately this is out there. There's something about Chinese culture that leads to the perception that uh, Chinese people, you know, just uh, uh, listen to the authority in a particular case, uh, whether it's it's the party or whoever the authority is in a particular circumstance. And this is something that I think people who are close observers of China always knew not to be true, but um, it's still out there. You know, uh, there's still this sort of generalization made by certain uh, speak uh, by certain people who are sometimes quite influential. Um, so. This is another thing that we wanted to push back against uh, through direct evidence is that uh, actually in, in small ways and large ways, uh, people in China uh, uh, do dissent quite regularly um, and they don't have that sort of limitation. Kind of related is the uh, looking through the, the your database, you see a lot of single person protests. And I think there is this also perception of Chinese people that like, oh, well, they care more about the the collective good than like individualism. Like yeah. So that, you know, they, nobody would stick their neck out for something uh, because like they care more about like the collective. Um, that's why uh, the society is like that. Right. Yeah. There was something like uh, 5% of, of the cases that we found are some sort of solo protest or one person protest. Um, I mean, this is, gets back to what you had uh, mentioned before, Shelley, about the risk. It, particularly if you're not in a group, the risk of a, of a solo protest is very high. Um, so that it's not extremely rare, you know, it's, it's somewhat common that you have these sorts of these protests. It's notable that people are willing to take the risk of, of putting themselves out there uh, by themselves. Um, yeah, I think it, within the context, it's, it's, uh, it's quite notable. That said, uh, if you're a person who has had an injustice sort of uh, uh, come upon you or your community, um, it is safer. You do mitigate risk somewhat by doing it, even in the context of a very repressive uh, regime, um, political regime. So I think that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons why we probably see collective uh, action is, is much more common, at least in the numbers that we found that. Uh, sort of individual protest, because within again within the context of you know that you're probably going to meet some sort of resistance or potential reprisal from authorities um, if you're doing a public action, uh, doing it in a group mitigates that risk a little bit. Well, speaking of uh, one-person protests, uh, there was a uh, a sort of one that became very well known ahead of the party congress in October where. Uh, like one guy, it seems like it was one guy, hung a couple banners uh, on this bridge in Beijing, basically calling for uh, freedom and calling for like an end to Xi Jinping. And that 
ended up getting quite a lot of attention and it was sort of unusual in that way. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think that the form of that protest um, and some of the, uh, of the substance of it was less unusual than the reporting suggested. Um, but some of the other content of it, like explicitly uh, opposing uh, Xi Jinping's uh, rule or the way that the way that he governs is is much more rare. Um, that, as, as I mentioned before, sort of protest against central government or, or central figures is is uh, more rare. Um, but you know, there were other things that it seemed, uh, based on what we could tell from the protest, motivated um, that person, um, uh, like COVID restrictions and and the ongoing restrictions and how how they impact people's lives. That's something that, as we've already talked about, is not that rare. And we're seeing it uh, across the country. Uh, another thing that was um, somewhat common is is the form of protest uh, that he used. It seemed to be a man uh, that he used um, uh, was uh, a banner, right? He hung a banner uh, across the highway. And and we see these sorts of banner uh, banners being used not only by people holding them up in, in a in a march or in a demonstration, but we also see them hung uh, on buildings or in other public places to try to uh, express some sort of dissent, um, including about COVID uh, restrictions, but also a lot of other issues. So um, yeah, it's, I think that, that that protest did did deserve the attention that it got because of the timing and, and what, I mean, it's, it, it, was, uh, it was a rare protest in the sense that it was directed at Xi Jinping uh, to some extent. Um, but when we put it into the context of everything else that we've found, um, there's a lot that we see there that, uh, that has crossover with other types of um, protests uh, in China. So despite dissent being far more common than most people would assume in China, uh, according to your report, you actually believe you underestimated uh, the actual amount of dissent. Why is that? Um, two main reasons. One it has to do with our own information collection. Uh, because we run across censorship in the course of trying to get information, we, we actually see things disappear, right? So we can, uh, in real time with our own eyes, see stuff that was there is no longer there and we, can know, we can't record it anymore. Um, as a, uh, we can't uh, document it in our database. So you know, doing this work for months at a time, you just start to, to see these things and you see the, the, the efforts to restrict this information so that leads to the reasonable conclusion that there's more information out there about protests than we're reporting. Um, that's one. And then another one is, is uh, uh, pulling in previous research and other academic and, and even some civil society efforts from the past. Other people have tried to use different ways to get at the scale of uh, collective action and protests in China and found thousands or even tens of thousands of events every year. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, up until 2010, one of the pieces of evidence for this was the Chinese government itself. So the Ministry of Public Security used to publish, I don't know if, uh, if you all recall this, but uh, they used to publish something called the um, uh, I'm forgetting the, the, the word for that in English right now. Um, You're talking about mass incidents? Mass incidents. Thank you. I don't know why I was drawing a blank on that. is mass incidents. So um, the public security keeps track of this and they probably still do, you know, they just don't tell us about it. Um, but for a number of years, they were publishing this figure, uh, uh, and 
in 2010, there was an academic. So the, in 2010, they, did, they no longer provided this information to the public, but they apparently provided it to somebody at the um, at uh, SAS, the, the so, um, uh, Center for Social uh, Studies in, in um, Beijing. And there was a researcher there who revealed through those numbers that it was that year something like 150 to 180,000 uh, events. Now, mass, we have to put an asterisk next to that because mass incidents um, is not necessarily just protests. It actually includes a lot of other things, uh, sort of collective events that the government deems um, a source of instability. Um, but it gives you a sense of sort of uh, generally that there's a lot that's going on within the PRC. Um, and what we can capture through open source information and other sources um, is only going to be is probably only going to be a part of that, uh, um, uh, sort of a, a certain proportion of that, and maybe even a small proportion of that. Um, what's different, about, I'll just add to that, what's different about our approach, though, compared to some past approaches, is the way that we're coding events. Um, we, we really uh, try to uh, code them across these variables in order to provide some comparability and trend analysis. And that's something that is quite time-consuming, but uh, it over time, it provides a really valuable source of information that allows us to make, uh, you know, generalizations or, or, or have a better understanding about some of the things we've been talking about today, whether they're how often repression happens or the scale of these protests or who the target is and what the demands are. Um, so uh, that's a little bit of a different approach that uh, China Descent Monitor has taken to this to this issue. Yeah, and I really wonder how... Uh... COVID lockdowns and the party Congress may have affected the number of protests. Like if it increased it, decreased it. Yeah, there's just a lot of data. That's it's it's very important to to actually get together. Yeah, um, I would say having done this for four months, now, I officially started collecting four to five months now. That it's uh, maybe too early for us to say. Uh, if the numbers that we're seeing now are going up or down relative to the past only because we don't have, you know, we haven't been doing this before June 2022. <clears throat> and it's so time consuming. That it would be very difficult for us to go back and get this information before June 2022 in the same way. Um, so uh, we're really looking forward to in the coming months and like sometime next year, being able to look at patterns throughout time. Um, for example, I mean, one partial estimate that we can make based on uh, efforts that have made by uh, made by other civil society organizations like uh, China Labor Bulletin, which follows strikes and, and labor disputes in China. Um, we can estimate that, for example, right before the Lunar New Year, there'll probably be um, uh, a spike in labor related protests uh, because a lot of uh, a lot of times um, there's wage arrears and unpaid wages that come to the fore right as people are getting ready to leave and go uh, on Lunar New Year, go home or, or take the break for Lunar New Year. And that leads to a lot of disputes. Um, so, you know, you might see sort of a, an ebb and flow based on, on major uh, social periods like that. And one thing I noticed also looking at the database is that there is a like you, the way that you're coding the, the dissent. There's a lot of different things like you mentioned strikes. Um, the group protest, the sign protest, and then I noticed even things like 
um, practicing faith was a category. And, you know, some of the things that were in there were like Tibetans who had um, a picture of the Dalai Lama in their home. Right. This is, um, I'm really glad you asked about that. So this actually gets a little bit into our methodology. Uh, I won't get into the weeds too much, but I think it's worth mentioning. So we spent a lot of time before starting documentation trying to come up with the definition of dissent. And this is a more difficult issue than uh, you might imagine on the face of it because we're talking about China. Um, so in the context, you know, what what is dissent really depends on, on the context. Um, and through a lot of consultation and, and discussion, we came up with a definition that was quite broad. So um, the definition that we actually I can pulled up here to uh, to read it directly. So the definition that we ended up uh, using, the base definition for dissent, was uh, actors or a single actor within the People's Republic of China, um, voicing grievances, asserting rights, advancing their interests, their public interest, in contention with the interests of political authorities, social authorities, or social structures. So this is a very broad definition. But the key uh, sort of term there is uh, challenging authority, some sort of authority um, within the context. And what that opens up this project to is, is being able to find cases where people are using, um, uh, with, within their social or cultural uh, or political context, using um, different forms or modes of action to challenge authority. And, and, that, and so when you're talking about uh, this sort of dynamic, the community really matters. So in the case of uh, Tibetans, which you just mentioned, just having a picture of the Dalai Lama, having a picture of an individual we all know uh, is um, quite contentious and can lead to a, a serious reprisal. Um, whereas if you were in a different community, having a picture of your religious leader uh, would be you know, no issue whatsoever. Um, it wouldn't even be worth mentioning. So um, it's really contextual. Uh, and that was one thing that, that we came away with during uh, consultations for uh, coming up with this methodology um, is that the context matters a lot um, for, um, and this is one of the reasons that led us to include uh, uh, sort of um, practicing a religious faith. A lot of religious communities in, or, or communities of faith in China are uh, persecuted just for practicing their faith in, in small ways. And when it's clear that when when it's um, when a certain group knows that what they're doing uh, can lead to reprisals, um, uh, uh, like worshiping together or uh, sharing information about their uh, about their faith, um, and they still do it anyway, that is a type of dissent within within the definition that we're using because they're challenging um, the often the political authorities in that context. Um, so uh, we have a sample of the, I should mention that for things that are less public, like practicing your faith or collectively worshiping, um, those are more difficult to record and they're probably happening so frequently anyway that we're only going to be capturing a small sample of them. So we, we sort of admit that uh, and, and we're transparent about the fact that we're just trying to collect examples of these types, uh, types of dissent to include them as, uh, to show the diversity of protest that's going on um, and different forms of dissent that are going on in China. Whereas with uh, offline protest and different sorts of collective action, we're really trying to capture um, a more 
a comprehensive picture um, so that we can compare frequency over time. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we, we do try to use a, a broader definition of descent in order to capture those different forms. I think this probably goes without saying, but just in case somebody doesn't understand, why would uh, dissent, uh, why, why would protesters or dissidents might want to avoid the Chinese internet? Why do you make that distinction? Um, okay, I, I'm not totally following your question. You mean they try to avoid the Chinese internet in what way? Well, yeah, because of the amount of uh, surveillance and control the Chinese Communist Party has over the internet, uh, dissent might be a little more survivable if you do it offline. So like, you know, house Christians aren't going to post about their upcoming Bible study on WeChat. Yeah, I and mean, they're not going to go on Facebook and say, let's let's organize a mass protest because well, well, first can't. of all, it's not on. Yeah. No, no Facebook. They don't have Facebook, but yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it's uh, the, the targeted censorship and repression of these communities of faith is such that um, not only is it really high risk uh, to do something like that because it can lead directly to arrest, um, uh, but it's also not very effective. If you if you put a post out, you know, a public post out that we should all you know get together to go worship at such and such place, um, forget for a moment whether police are going to show up at that place and arrest everybody. Um, it'll get censored so quickly that people might not even see the message in the first place. So it's not a very effective way of uh, disseminating your sort of uh, uh, call to worship together. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it leads to a situation where people have to go underground um, to uh, and sort of in, in semi-private uh, or private ways uh, to communicate information about their faith community. And that's one, so from our perspective, that's one of the reasons why we know we're only capturing a tiny picture of these and we're just trying to share them with readers in order to give a sense of what, what else is going on. But we don't claim that this is uh, representative of the numbers. As my colleague, Sarah Cook, we actually interviewed recently for uh, BGMI. Um, she, previously, she had done uh, a report on um, different communities of faith in China and how uh, there's actually many believers uh, in China in different, in different communities and they still practice their faith despite restrictions. Um, and we know from research like that, that there's actually a huge number of people, millions, tens of millions of people, uh, who, despite restrictions on, on, uh, their faith continue to try to practice it in different ways. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the uh, windows into that, those actions that we're capturing are just a small sample. Do you have a sense of how people are able to organize sort of these larger, uh, movements without the internet? Um, I, so the movements that we've captured so far have been, have included the internet and, and actually the internet played a really key part, but they, but in a way that maybe is not, um, very obvious. So they weren't necessarily organized explicitly through the internet. Um, uh, I mean, so I know this isn't really your question, Chris, but if you don't mind me uh, sort of turning this into a, to a uh, quick blurb about uh, movements for a moment, because I think this is interesting. We have recorded um, uh, a, a three, uh, three or four types of movements that have happened just during this short period. And I think to not only casual observers, but even uh, uh, people who 
study China closely, this would be somewhat surprising because we know that uh, concerted movements are very difficult, uh, even more difficult, right, than, than just having a collective action when you're trying to organize one or multiple collective actions over time across space. Um, that's really perceived as a threat uh, by the Communist Party um, at, at high levels. And so these efforts in the past, recent past, to try to organize um, movements um, uh, around different issues have been met with, with real serious clampdowns um, and uh, mass arrests. Um, despite this, we, we recorded some movements, but they're decentralized. And I think that's sort of been the key in the ability of these movements to occur in the first place, is they're decentralized and they're somewhat leaderless. Um, it doesn't appear from what we can see that um, there's a ton of coordination. There might be some, <clears throat> excuse me, but there's not a ton of coordination. Um, so one example of this uh, that, um, that we noted in our analysis was the real name complaint movement. Um, in Chinese, it's the Shimin Jubao. We called it the Shimin Jubao Yundong. The real name complaint movement um, was has this base in uh, a number of regulations in Chinese law that allow people to use or encourage people to use their real name, their real ID, to make uh, complaints through different institutional channels. And over time, um, if, if you know anything about the petitioning system, for example, that often doesn't really work uh, to resolve issues, um, people get really frustrated with this. And so kind of invoking uh, that official system, people were holding up their ID cards in their protests. So they would get together in groups, they would hold up their ID cards, and they would often start their, their public statement um, during the protest with, I'm making a real name complaint. Uh, they would start a lot of the protests this way. Uh, so this is sort of this shared symbology, uh, um, symbolism that we saw. Uh, and it all happened within a, a short period. Well, not all of it, but most of it happened within a short period in June um, where people were uh, connecting essentially through the symbolism, but also through <clears throat> online hashtags. And they weren't, so these hashtags um, weren't, you know, them sharing direct messages. They weren't coordinating necessarily behind the scenes. They just saw a spike in other people doing, um, uh, in, in organizing this way and um, making open public grievances against uh, officials, corruption, um, and fraud. And so they, they followed on this and, and used the same um, symbolism um, to organize with people in their community and, and, and do a similar protest. And we counted something like 65 uh, collective events. So not, not counting solo uh, sort of uh, protests because there were so many that we actually couldn't count them, um, but sort of collective efforts. There was some, something like 65 of these across, two week, uh, across uh, more than a dozen provinces um, uh, in, in a period of a few weeks. And so this, this is, a, you know, from different angles of, of what a movement is. This is, this is a movement that occurred um, in China and didn't lead, well, it led to some, some repression, but it didn't lead and it couldn't lead to sort of a, a concerted effort to go after leadership because there was no leadership. I mean, so it's very interesting that maybe in part because of the restrictions on uh, protest in China, it's led to these cases where the movements that are happening on a more regular basis 
tend to be they take this sort of uh, uh, form where people are sort of studying one another and they're they're creating a movement in in this less coordinated way. So it's like the ice bucket challenge of <laughs> protest <laughs> movements, like just in the sense that like it's kind of spreading, but not any particular person yeah. is responsible. Or the Tide Pod Challenge. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, maybe Tide Pod Challenge is more apt because the there are serious risks associated with <laughs> protesting in China. Well, That's true. Actually, one thing that about this real name protest that it, I, think, I think is pretty interesting that you mentioned, it's kind of like there should be an official channel for people to do this, which is the petitioning system. But then people, it doesn't actually work. So people got frustrated and they started to do this real name protest online instead. Is this something that causes a lot of protests in China? The fact that people feel like they don't have another, uh, like they don't really have another way to get what they want. So the way to do it is through protesting. I think it plays no small part in uh, a lot of these cases. Um, and it's not just petitioning. So there are, you know, there are many different official channels for uh, technically for resolving a lot of these issues that we're observing in the China Descent Monitor uh, database. Um, whether, you know, for example, housing, a lot of the, the housing cases uh, technically don't need to be resolved through petitioning. Um, petitioning is sort of the last uh, the the last measure that somebody would go to or a group would go to, um, but they'll go. To, I mentioned this before. They'll go to a regulatory body, and supposedly those regulatory bodies are supposed to play a role in uh, in uh, regulating this industry, this sector. And um, when people perceive that it's really not working, <clears throat> and they're not seeing any movement, um, or people are dragging their feet, the government are dragging their feet, or the company's continuing not to. Uh, resolve the issue, um, they resort to these less institutional or these non-institutional means. They go out in public, they try to get attention in their case um, to put pressure on the people in power in these cases. And I think that is the key dynamic in uh, most of these protests. Uh, why do people in, in a situation where there's so much risk associated with this action, why do they go to these lines? Um, from their perspective, uh, they might wish uh, the average person might wish to resolve it through a less risky means. So they would like to use an institutional channel. Um, and in, in a lot of these cases, they try it. Uh, they'll write letters um, as a group individually. Um, they'll uh, sometimes they do resort to petitioning, as you had mentioned. I mean, there are millions of petitions every year. Um, and when it doesn't work uh, and, and people are uh, know that it seems like they're not going to get any response from the official channels, they they resort to these uh, more inst uh, non-institutional means to put pressure on on, on uh, the powerful actors to do something. And in five to ten percent of cases, it works. Huh. <laughs> That's a big gamble. And it's probably more than that, but we can only record direct evidence <laughs> in five to ten percent of cases. Well, nonetheless, it's a it's a much smaller percent than the twenty five percent where you've measured direct repression and the probably more than that where there is repression. So if you have a 5 to 10% chance of getting any concessions, but at least a 25% chance of being repressed, like those are bad odds. Like don't go to Vegas with those odds. Yeah. <laughs> don't go to China with those odds. Uh, I guess one last question I have is what, 
What kind of impact do you hope the China Descent Monitor will have? I mean, you mentioned uh, sort of clarifying some misconceptions about Chinese people, but is there anything else you have in mind? I mean, it's it's it goes back to the information gap. Uh, that was really the driving issue. Um, the information gap underlies a lot of other problems. So not only misconceptions, whether you think protest is not frequent or misconceptions about uh, Chinese uh, people or Chinese citizens, um, but also uh, the ability of people outside and inside of China to make, uh, uh, to have an understanding about what's going on in the country or in their own communities. If you, if you don't have access to this information, um, however you want to use it, uh, it's, you know, it's limiting your understanding of, of uh, the social and sort of political reality around you. Um, you know, if, if uh, you know, we talk about people outside of China believing that protest is not very frequent, well, there might actually be, there probably is a lot of people inside of China that believe that collective action and protest is also not very frequent um, because that information is, is kept from them too, um, even more so. So um, getting this information out there is, is really uh, potentially has a lot of knock-on effects to how people understand um, you know, their own communities in China, but again, uh, also outside of China, how they understand what's going on in the country. And, and just one sort of a clear example of that would be this idea that particularly as Chinese nationalism grows and, and the Communist Party relies on uh, images of nationalism and it promotes it externally. Um, it also wants to give this perception in a lot of cases that Chinese people are all nationalists and that they're all towing the line and uh, all towing the, the one party, uh, the line of uh, the, uh, they all support the one party regime and sort of believe in its nationalist um, goals. And, you know, while there, there are a lot, there is a lot of nationalism in China, and, and this might be true for some people, the story is much more diverse and complex than that. Um, and there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily concerned with uh, the, the nationalist machinations of the Communist Party and their, and their foreign uh, goals and um, adventurism. Um, they're much more concerned with, with uh, stuff that happened in their life and injustices in their communities and you know, trying to get uh, food on the table or trying to make sure that they have a house that they paid for. Um, and uh, or that they're able to go to work because of COVID lockdowns. And I think being able to, to hear the voices of Chinese people directly um, through uh, what they're actually concerned about and what they're saying and what they're willing to take risks to protest for, um, that's really the, the objective of, of China's set monitors to, is to elevate and amplify those voices. Well, I know we definitely appreciate having some good data on this. It's, it is, as you say, an information gap, so... Uh, yes, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, it'll, we'll put a link to this in the description below for people to check out. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for your interest in this. Well, I think that the database is going to be really useful, especially as we move on and people have to become more and more creative about dissent in China. Like we mentioned the case of that guy who hung those banners. Mm -hmm. uh, and Kevin mentioned that like hanging banners is a pretty common way of protesting in China, actually. But what I found interesting and didn't expect is that after he got taken away by police, then people started replicating his message in, remember, public mm -hmm. bathrooms, mm -hmm. right? Like places where they knew that, because they knew that there was a risk 
of being caught by all of the surveillance cameras, but there's no surveillance cameras in the restroom. You would hope. Well, the problem is that if the party feels like it needs to start putting cameras in bathrooms, it will. Oh, you got to feel bad about the the person who has to monitor those. They'll find somebody who likes it. (laughs) Oh, no. I was not expecting you to go there. But I guess what I was going for was the idea that people can get creative with the forms of dissent. Yeah. And that really is like you see that with all like protest movements under authoritarian regimes, just the amount of creativity that comes out because you have to. I mean, but sometimes in authoritarian regimes, you don't have to do much to protest. Like in Iran, all you have to do is take off your headscarf if you're a woman. Like that's such a big protest that the symbolism of that is is well understood. It's widely seen as dissent and it's a very simple act that anyone can do. So, you know, except for all the men. It's a relatively simple act that a lot of people can do. Yes. Or things like, oh, that person hanging up those banners would not have made a splash in any other country where protest is legal, right? Right. But because it was China, like right ahead of the party Congress, it was like 24-7 like coverage from Western media from all over the world. Yeah. He probably had no idea what kind of impact he was going to make. Yeah. And and that one in particular was very interesting to see how like there would be like, you know, Chinese Instagram channels that like document the people recreating that protest message all throughout the world. And that really had the effect of a lot of, you know, Chinese dissidents understanding that they aren't alone, actually, that there are lots of people who uh, are not happy with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, I actually listened in into some Twitter spaces calls that happened after that among Chinese dissidents. And there was a real um, sense that like, oh, well, like they, they were like, we need to capitalize on this where like people, you know, yeah, people are doing things. Yeah. yeah. And that's why this uh, China Descent Monitor is so important because it provides that information that yes, things are happening. And that's good, not just for people outside of China, but for people inside of China to know that, hey, oh, we aren't alone. So I highly encourage you to check it out. We'll have a link below. Uh, And thank you for watching this episode of China Unscripted. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time.